Chapter 8 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Rio de la Plata. And now, my readers, I am going to take you with me far away from the salt seas, not to return to them again until you have followed me over many thousands of miles of inland travel, extending over nine months of time. For the falcon was now to sail up the great freshwater rivers to the central wildernesses of the continent, where no yacht had ever been before. And again she was to be left for months at anchor, while her crew changed their sailor life for that of the gaucho, and rode across the great pampas, through the arid montes of St. Iago, to the great cordilleras and tropical forests of Tucumán. A few months before our arrival... Buenos Aires had passed through one of these periodical revolutions, without which no South American republic is long happy. The bumptiousness of the province of Buenos Aires provoked the contest, for the porteños, as the Buenos Aires termed themselves, wished to raise by force their own man to the office of president, in despite of the votes of the other thirteen provinces. These revolutions are a great nuisance to the estancieros, cattle farmers, in the camps, for while they last, the country is overrun by irregular troops and marauding gauchos who requisition and rob in a most promiscuous fashion. Robbery is, after all, the whole object of these civil discords. The two parties fight their little game out, and the winner enjoys the monopoly of swindling the nation for the term of the presidential office. Bloodshed is avoided as much as possible. This time, however, one serious engagement was fought in Buenos Aires, for the rival armies met by accident, and about 2,000 of the Buenos Aires were slain by the wild Indians and half-breeds of the provincial army. This battle, so they say, was entirely due to bad generalship, for all the rival forces desired was to keep apart and plunder in different directions. Unfortunately, it came to pass that the two armies came across each other and were plundering at the same time in the same locality. It was exceedingly awkward. They could not very well wink at each other and continue to plunder on different sides of the street. They could not ignore and cut each other dead, so were obligated, if only as a matter of form, to do a bit of fighting. I suppose they got warmed up when they once commenced, for it was a serious business as long as it lasted, and the butcher's bill was longer than the government liked to confess afterwards. We loafed about Buenos Aires until we were bored. We were welcomed on change, Anglo-Porteños will know what that means, visited several estancias in the southern camps and elsewhere, acquiring an insight into the unnecessarily brutal way in which horses are broken in and cattle worked in this part of the globe were interested in the ostrich farms, which promised to be as remunerative here as in South Africa, and then considered whither we should next go. Our chief object in coming out of this part of the world was to ascend some of the tributaries of the Great La Plata as far as was possible in the yacht, for from all we had heard and read, such a voyage would not fail to repay us with the enjoyment of strange and marvelous scenery and splendid sport nor were we altogether disappointed in our expectations. But for the present, the river voyage was not to be thought of. It was now midsummer, and even as far south as Buenos Aires, by the shores too, the refreshing sea, 
The thermometer did not rarely indicate 100 degrees in the shade. Those at Buenos Aires who knew the Parana and Paraguay advised us to postpone our cruise till the winter and drew alarming pictures for us of the intolerable torment of the mosquitoes that would render our life a misery to us in the inland waters at this season. We therefore determined to leave the falcon at her safe moorings in the Tigre in charge of the boy, purchase a horse each, and undertake an expedition into the interior of the continent of about two months' duration. Our plans were rather vague when we left the capital, but Cordoba, the ancient Jesuit city in the heart of the Republic, was to be our immediate destination, and Rosario, the second city of this country, and 280 miles higher up the river than Buenos Aires, our starting point. From Cordoba, we would journey either to the tropical provinces of the north or westward to the Andes, as we might consider best. Jardine, Arnaud, and myself met at the Estación Centrale one delicious February morning. Our luggage was simple and businesslike. Each took with him a saddle, saddlebags containing spare flannel shirts, etc., top boots, a blanket, a revolver, a poncho, and a wide native belt of carpincho hide, while a broad-brimmed felt hat was on each head. After a three-hour's journey in the comfortable American cars of the Campania Railway Company across treeless, dusty plains of pasture whose monotony the rare agave and cactus alone relieved, we reached Campania, a small port on one of the many channels of the great delta of the La Plata. This is the terminus of the railway, and here we had to embark on David Bruce and Company's steamer Provador. These steamers run between Campania and Rosario, a distance of about 200 miles, thus connecting Buenos Aires with the central Argentine trunk railway, whose southern terminus is at Rosario. We were enabled to form a good idea of what was in store for the good ship Falcon from what we saw on this short voyage up the Great Parana. We steamed all that afternoon and through the night up a broad stream of muddy water, winding across an alluvial plain flat as a pancake. This stream was broad and deep, as a huge river should be, and yet this was but one minor branch of this tremendous watercourse, which, with its sister the Amazon, drains the huge southern continent and whose headwaters are in the unexplored tropical forests and savannas in close proximity to those of that other mighty river. The Paraguay, the Parana, the Uruguay, and a dozen other mighty streams pour their waters into the common estuary of the Rio de la Plata, and it is estimated that the volume of water brought down hourly by this river exceeds that of all the rivers in Europe put together. As we steamed up, we could perceive the mainland on neither side of us, for this was but a comparatively narrow channel between two huge islands, and what a strange country was this intricate network of island and channel. On our starboard hand, for instance, the mainland was thirty miles away. Between us and that were islands numberless, rising not more than two feet or so above the average level of the water, an unknown wilderness of swamp and jungle, uninhabited save in rare spots by the shores of the more commonly navigated channels. The islands are thickly overgrown with a rank and ever-verdant vegetation. Willows, great reeds, the gnarled sibo tree with its bright green leaves and scarlet blossoms, strange bushes, all interwoven with rich convolvuli, render these wilds impassable save to the carpincho or river hog, 
the tiger and the lion, as the natives called the jaguar and the puma, and deadly snakes of resplendent color. Near Rosario, the islands are frequently inhabited. Enterprising foreigners cultivate rice successfully on some of them, and on others, as I read from the Buenos Aires Standard, certain not desirable people are to be found. Gauchos who have given up the horse to take to the canoe, a lawless set who make frequent raids on the estancias of the mainland, fishermen by profession but pirates and menditi by practice. For these good old-fashioned ruffians, the buccaneers, are by no means extinct on the tributaries of La Plata. There are districts on the banks of the Piranha, for instance, near Corrientes, a thousand miles from the sea, that have acquired a very evil reputation. Cutthroat crews have often come out in canoes from the secluded riachos of the Chaco, seized and plundered the passing Italian trading schooners, and murdered the men. Most of these trading schooners now carry a small cannon in addition to their muskets. The Falcon, though much smaller than any of these vessels, would, I think, be quite as capable as any of them of resisting the pirates successfully, for we are incomparably better off as regards arms. On the following morning, we found that we had reached the main stream of the Piranha. On our port hand was the mainland, on our starboard a string of islands about three miles away. The river itself is still very wide, for the Entre Rio shore is quite forty miles off, an unexplored wilderness of shallow streams and long green isles intervening. There is now a considerable navigation on the Piranha. Vessels from North America and Europe, loaded with hides, bones, and alfalfa, a sort of lucerne, at the quays of Rosario. But the navigation above this is almost exclusively in the hands of the Italians. Their vessels are handsome schooners of little drop but great beam, with enormous spread of canvas and great square topsails high aloft to catch the wind above the trees. The running gear is generally of plated hide, a very excellent substitute for ropes. They go up against the stream, laden with wines and European produce, even as far as the center of the Brazilian province of Mato Grosso, about 2,400 miles from the sea, the voyage there and back occupying about a year. They return to Buenos Aires and Montevideo with cargoes of cedar and valuable hardwoods from the virgin forests of the Chaco of oranges from Paraguay and other produce of those rich but little cultivated countries. At last we came to an anchor off Rosario, the second city of the Republic, stretching along the banks of a river which, even here, so many hundreds of miles from the sea, is so broad that from a ship's deck the horizon between the many islands is of water, the further coast being invisible. Such are the sea-like expanses that stretch between isle and isle. Mr. Keenan, the popular host of the English hotel at Rosario, soon made us at home in his comfortable hotel. He already knew us by reputation, having read about our wanderings in the papers. If you study any old atlas, and not so very old either, you will not be able to discover such a place as Rosario on the map of South America. Yet you will most probably see Santa Fe, its neighbor, marked in prominent letters, though this is but a little village to the first-named large and wealthy city. For Rosario is one of those mushroom cities that rise so rapidly in this new western world. Its prosperity is of yesterday. It is brand new, painfully new from an artistic point of view, 
a money-making, tramwayed, prosperous place that has doubled its population in ten years and will, in all probability, double it again in another ten years. For it cannot but always be a most important place, being, as it is, the terminus of those great railways that will, in time, open out all the rich regions between the Bolivian forests, the Pampas, the Pacific, and the Atlantic. Now that the influx of foreigners into the Argentine Republic is augmenting so amazingly, and revolution is waxing feebler and feebler before it, who can foresee limits to the increase of the commercial enterprise and wealth of these wonderful countries? Even now, the produce that lies on the quays of Rosario, ready to be put on board ship, will give us an insight into what is yet to be. There are the sugars, the valuable cabinet woods of Tucumán, the hides and beef from the estancias of the Pampas, wines from the eastern slopes of the Andes, the vintage of Mendoza and San Juan. Minerals, too, from the Cordilleras and from the Sierras of Cordoba, where gold and silver and copper abound, and only wait the adventurous miner. There is but little to say about these modern Spanish South American cities. They are very uninteresting. In describing one, you describe all. The same straight streets drawn at right angles to each other with the dismal one-storied flat-roofed houses. Tramways everywhere, a square or two. A cleanly prosperous look about the whole, inhabitants included. Here you have everything. This chessboard-like block system of laying out cities produces one effect that eminently strikes the stranger. In any of these long straight streets, one has an uninterrupted view right through town. At Buenos Aires, and more especially at Montevideo, the sea terminates the view as a rule. Here it is the Pampas. If you stand in the center of Rosario, where any two streets cross, and look up and down them, you will see that each abruptly terminates far off in a sort of mist, for no straggling suburbs surround the town. At the end of each street is the desert. The mist you perceive is the dust of the immense plain that commences at the verge of the city and stretches unbroken for a thousand leagues. The suddenness of the exit from the thickly thronged street into the roadless wilds is very remarkable in many of these cities, and is doubtless a relic of the old days when Indian raids were frequent, and the first few founders of the Pueblo crowded their habitations together for mutual protection, and surrounded them with a common stockade. It is indeed a marvelous contrast, a wilderness untilled, inhabited by wild half-breeds clad in a barbaric costume, coming up to the very streets of cities where every article of European civilization is to be found, and whose citizens are delicate in their lives and fastidiously dressed in the height of the latest Parisian fashion. It is curious to see the gaucho from the Pampas strolling through the busy streets, so out of place with his striped poncho, his laced drawers, and his hide belt ornamented with coins. He does not evince any interest or curiosity, but from his looks evidently hates and despises towns and their pale inhabitants. Life in the saddle, on the pampas or in the monte bush, is the only life he knows or cares for. Horse-stealing and cattle-lifting, in his opinion, are the only pursuits worthy of a man. One more day we pottered about the glaring hot city and its environs. In the morning we visited an ostrich farm on the river bank. In the evening attended a public ball. 
for the carnival was approaching and south americans only requiring an excuse to commence their favorite pastime generally opened the masked balls weeks before the orthodox time so as to get into full swing for that fearful terpsichorean orgy which they celebrate once a year the indo-spanish race lazy in all else is certainly indefatigable in dance for nights in succession these people will tread unwearied their graceful native figures with supple limbs the head every limb indeed the whole being seems to be entering into the measure inspired with a species of frenzy at three theatres here there were public masked balls this night attended by all classes from stately white ladies in parisian costume to the simple little copper-colored chinas with pink dresses of common stuff and black mantillas ever laughing faces and perpetually shaking fans there are by the by some not uncomely faces among these dusky half-breeds the indian blood producing a much handsomer type than the negro when crossed with the spanish or portuguese before starting on our expedition we had to exchange the notes we had brought from buenos aires for the money current up country every province of this republic has a circulation of its own not current in the other provinces which accounts for the enormous number of money changers one comes across in every city there is a common standard throughout the whole country called a patacon which is about the value of four shillings but this patacon has no real existence it is a purely imaginary quantity there is no coin or banknote which professes to be one or more patacones or any fraction of the same but i suppose it serves as a standard whereby to compare the variously fluctuating provincial monies in the province of buenos aires gold or silver is unknown paper money being the only currency the original paper dollar was intended to represent a spanish silver dollar or peso but between revolution and what not this paper peso gradually depreciated till it reached its present value of about two pence this seeming somewhat unsatisfactory to the sage rulers of the country they issued another superior sort of paper dollar which they called the peso fuerte or hard dollar to be of the full value of the original four and two penny silver coin before mentioned this is now current in buenos aires by the side of the two penny paper dollar or peso corriente but alas the peso fuerte has also terribly depreciated by this time whether the government will issue an extra fuerte and then when that goes down a fuertissimo and so on is beyond my power to say the government of santa fe the province in which we now are issues a paper dollar of the value of about three shillings the cordovan paper dollar is worth a little more and does represent some fixed value the silver dollar of bolivia in the remoter and poorer provinces there is no paper money but quaint old silver bolivian coins peruvian and chilean dollars and the like foreign money are the sole currency i have said enough to show how confusing this system is and how the unfortunate traveller must lose in the frequent exchanges while travelling through this republic it is rather a curious fact that in the wealthier republics of south america metallic currency is quite unknown while the poorer countries like paraguay and bolivia have nothing else i suppose the fact is that no one would have anything to do with the paper of these untrustworthy states 
had they the impudence to issue any. About seven leagues from Rosario, on the central Argentine railway, is the small town, I must not risk offense by calling it a village, of Carcarañal. Hearing that this was a likely place to purchase horses in, we took train thither on the second morning after our landing at Rosario. This railway is carried in a perfectly straight line without curve or gradient for hundreds of miles across the Pampas, and strange these vast plains seem to us as viewed today for the first time from the windows of the car. We saw an interminable pasture, roadless, treeless, stretching all around. Here and there a great cattle farm, either unfenced or surrounded with a wire fence. Vast herds of sleek cattle and troops of half-wild horses roamed over the plain. Here and there were partial deserts of burnt-up earth and sand. Here, muddy lagunas, while at long intervals, like oases in the treeless waste, rose small, isolated clumps of eucalypti marking the sites of the estancias. Under the intense blue sky, the horizon seemed to be infinitely far off, trembling and rolling like the waves of a distant sea with a mirage, while the distant eucalypti were raised by it and seemed to be rooted in midair. At Carcarañal, we found a little inn kept by a hospitable dame from Old Gaul who made us very comfortable. A curious little camp town, this, merely a straight row of clean, flat-roofed, one-storied houses, in front a lane of small acacias, all around and beyond, glaring under the cloudless, implacable sky, the arid plain with its short, dried-up grass, a cloud of dust over all, dust of the finest and most penetrating nature, dust that will find its way through all your clothes to your skin in no time, dust that is as bad as an Egyptian plague, irritating, blinding, poor closing, parching. Stay, let us at least give it its justice. It did prepare us to thoroughly enjoy the brimming cups of caña and water flavored with some delicate essence of fruit that our landlady mixed for us. There is use in everything, even in dust. A funny collection we were in the little hostelry after dinner. At one table was our party playing at euchre and shirt sleeves. At another, several natives in camp guard gambling desperately at Monte with a very greasy pack of cards. In the next room, we could perceive through the open door a merry wedding supper party. Gringos, these English, German, French, and Italian colonists. We had arrived here very opportunely, for as soon as these people had dined, they cleared the room for a jolly ball, which was energetically kept up all night to the merry music of a three-tuned barrel organ. As is the free and easy fashion of this country, all strangers were welcome to join them in their merrymaking. Wedding garments were by no means de rigueur, but it seemed the proper thing to take off one's coat while dancing. In the middle of the night, we heard in a lull in the revelry a shouting of many voices in the distance, and then the tread and lowing of numerous cattle. This turned out to be a vast herd of many hundred head that was being driven down to Rosario from some far northern province where a long seca had been prevailing and where all beasts were dying for want of water and pasture. As soon as the peons had rounded in these cattle outside the town for the night, the headman and a few others came in to seek hospitality. Attracted by the sound of the baile, they entered the inn and were soon dancing away with the rest of us, in despite of the fatigue and stiffness of a month in the saddle. 
They danced in their camp dress, top boots, silver spurs, jeripas, pancho and all, so that one might almost imagine oneself at a fancy dress ball at home, such was the variety of costume. End of chapter 8